Hey guys, good morning. There are some open seats up in this corner from this spot. We're not adding another service. All right, scoot together. <laughs> well, um, Matt Heverly, Pastor Matt, he got shoulder surgery and he is doing just phenomenal. He's doing way better. It's healing up great. I saw him at the Friday morning men's Bible study and he's got his arm in a sling and he was holding a cup of tea in one hand. So he's got tea here, sling here. And I walk up and go, Matt, you're here. He goes, yeah. And I go, high five. And I thought that was hysterical. <laughs> so he'll be back soon. We're really excited that he's doing well. Just praise Jesus. Jesus, thank you so much that Matt is doing well. We pray for his continued healing, that his arm would just be absolutely impeccable after it's uh, done repairing itself, Lord. And so I pray that today, as we look into your word, that you would speak to us, that we would hear from you. And uh, just thank you for the opportunity that we have to come here to praise you and to read from your word. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. 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 Well, my name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here. I was uh, born in the early 90s. That means I was raised in a time when cartoons were pretty confusing for parents. Like there was a lot of things on TV where it's like, oh, that's a kid's show. And it's not a kid's show. Like one time I remember my mom went out on a girl's night. And it was just me. My other siblings hadn't been born yet. And so she leaves me with my dad, which is already scary. And so she comes home, and we're both on the couch watching TV. And my mom goes, oh, what are you guys watching? She, and my dad goes, I don't know, but it's awesome. And so she's looking at it, and she listens for a minute. And she goes, he can't watch this. It's just The Simpsons, you know. He can't watch this. But it's great because now any problem I have, I get to blame them. So it evens out, right? It's my parents' fault. They didn't raise me right. Well, I remember this scene on The Simpsons, and I'll always remember it, and it's Homer, he's the dad, something just catastrophic is happening. The sky is dark, it is rainy, there's lightning, the whole world is falling apart right before his eyes, and he's on his knees, and he's praying to God. He says, God, if you will fix this situation, if you'll clear up this, these circumstances, I will tithe. I will give you so much money. I will show up every single week to church. I won't even complain anymore. I will be nice to Ned Flanders, my neighbor, because I know you seem to like that guy. He likes you a whole lot. I will visit my dad like I've been promising that I'll visit him in the retirement home. And he just starts listing all of these things. I'm going to serve you. I'm going to give to you. I'm going to be your guy. I will do something to make it work. And all of a sudden, the sky clears up and the rain goes away. And the lightning stops. And Homer hasn't finished his prayer yet. And he looks up and he notices it. And he stands up and he goes, psych! I didn't say amen. It doesn't count. We're not locked in yet. Like that was his whole attitude is, is hey, because I didn't say amen, it does, it's not binding. And I will always remember that because that's 100% me. And it might be you too. That when problems come my way, all of a sudden I get super spiritual. Okay, God, I'm going to come to church every single week. All right, God, well, I'm gonna, every morning I'll, I'll read your word. I'm going to get really close to you. I, I just need you to do these things for me. And I tend to become really a spiritual person when there's big problems in my life and I need God's help. But then when things kind of clear up, things go back to normal, the sky comes out, I start to regain this illusion of my own self-sufficiency and I've got this all together. And, and really, I check in with God, but hey, things are pretty okay and I can do this on my own. And then think problems come and I'm right back where I was. It's just a constant pendulum. 
And maybe that's where you find yourself. Like maybe you came to church today because there's problems in your life. And you go, okay, God, I've got to figure this out. I, I really need your help. So I'm going to come to church until you can solve this problem for me. But that's not the only reason why people come to church. I mean, uh, some people come to church because they hear that there's pretty girls who come to Edgewater and they want to meet a pretty girl. And so they meet that girl and they come to church and they start to build a relationship and then they get married. Then they have tons of problems and they come every week, right? So it just, it builds consistency, right? So there's lots of reasons you come to church. Some people, maybe you're in a spot right now where there isn't problems currently going on in your life, at least not at the surface. But at some point, we all encounter scenarios in our life, circumstances that make us say, God, I really need your help. And sometimes God doesn't want to just fix our problem, but he wants to heal us, which are two very different things. It's a very different thing for God to just heal your problem or God to heal you. And so in the story that we're going to look at today, it's 2 Kings chapter 5. You have a man who's got a big problem and all he wants is God to fix his problem, but God is more interested in healing him. So it's 2 Kings chapter 5. It's a very familiar text. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his Lord thus, and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went, taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 changes of clothing. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, when this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, am I God to kill and to make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he's seeking a quarrel with me. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh shall be restored and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry and went away saying, behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana 
and Parfer, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel. Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. But his servants came near and said to him, my father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Then he returned to the man of God, he and all his company, and he came and stood before him, and he said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. So the guy that we have is a guy named Naaman. He is the general of Syria. Israel and Syria are bitter enemies at this point. If you read 2 Kings, the chapters before, they're at war. 2 Kings, the chapters after, they're at war. The little girl in service of Naaman's house is a slave girl that he captured from Israel. They're at war. They're bitter enemies. Syria really is dominating Israel. Israel is the lesser nation at this point. So you have this general of Syria looking at Israel saying, hey, maybe their God, the lesser country's God, has something to offer me, to cure me, to heal me. It's a really crazy idea to think that this general would think Israel's God has anything to offer him. And really, Naaman in and of itself is a lot like the average American. He has resources and access beyond most people in human history have ever had. He's got connections. He's got access to technology, information. He's got money. He's got power. He's got access to a lot of resources to try to fix his problem. Nothing has fixed his problem. He desperately wants his problem fixed. The problem is, is that God doesn't want to just fix his problem. God wants to heal him. And so today we're going to look at two things in this story. The purpose of our problems, the purpose of our problems, and how to get healed. Those two things, and you see them both in this story. So the first thing is the purpose of our problems. Sometimes you and I get problems that come into our lives, and their purpose is to cause you and I to become seekers. The, the problem that comes into his life, there's something that has happened that has showed up in his life that has rocked him in such a way that he is going to see that the self-sufficiency idea that he's built up, that you and I can build up, this idea that we are totally self-sufficient in and of ourselves is a lie. So look at how the Bible describes Naaman in verse one. This is a brilliant verse in the Hebrew. As it's written, there's no period in verse one. Verse one is one flowing line. After that period in Syria, that's not there. That was added in. There's no period in the Hebrew. It is a just flowing, brilliant, almost poetic verse. And this is how it reads. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria. What a title. That is a tie. This is the biggest army around at the time. He's got a name for himself. People know who he is. When he comes into a room, women faint and men salute him. Like he's got people aspire to be him. He's a big name guy. More than that, he was a great man with his master and in high favor. The king looks at him and says, oh, he didn't manipulate his way to the top. He earned it. This is a great man. This is a man people respect. This is a man, this is the dude. I can trust this guy. On top of that, he's in high favor because 
By him, the Lord had given victory to Syria. In the Old Testament, very often, the Israelites would choose, hey, I'm going to rebel against God, be disobedient to him. I don't want to follow God. We're going to do things our own way by our own power. And so God would often say, okay, fine, enjoy that. And would actually empower other nations to come and crush the Israelites that they would say, hey, life without God is really hard and a bummer and I want to go back to God. Sometimes the problems in our lives, the purpose of them is because we're being disobedient to the Lord and we need to repent and come back to him. That's very true for all of us. And that's what's happening with the Israelites right now. And he was a mighty man of valor. That's used a few times in the Old Testament to simply say this is a man of integrity, This is a man of courage, of bravery, of valor. You see it in the Old Testament with Gideon. Like that's the picture that comes to mind. A man who can stand against all odds and be empowered. People can trust in him. He can lead a nation. He's a mighty man of valor. Just poetically, he's got accolade. He's got respect. He's got people's affirmation. He's got money. He's got skill. He's got expertise. He's got character. But he was a leper. It doesn't say, but this guy has leprosy. It says he was a leper. Leprosy is this all-consuming disease, and it, became, it is defining this man, Naaman. There's no part of your life that got not consumed by this disease. What it does is it starts to kill the nerves in your body. Your body parts begin to fall off or shrivel up. You lose the, your optical nerves, and you start to go blind. It's still around today. It's called Hansen's disease, and it can be mitigated, cured, and lessened. But at this point in history, it couldn't. This was a disease that was so bad and so contagious that it would consume your life. Your family would have to shun you. You would lose all your relationships. You have to be outside the gate. No matter how much money you had or respect you had from people, there was nothing that could stop this disease from consuming you and taking over. It was a terrible disease. What this verse is supposed to teach you and me as we read it, as we look at it, is no matter how hard you work to build a designer life for yourself, there is always something that can come and ruin it, just ruin it, just destroy it, take it all away, that can consume you, that can redefine you, that can show you how vulnerable you really are. And it can be outside forces. It can be outside of you, people that you love, who you care about, who you They're your kid, they're your spouse, they die. It could be illness comes into your life and just seems so frightening and scaring and consuming. It could be someone that you really deeply trust betrays you. It could be financial reversal. Hey, everything is fine and good, I've got money and resources and now I don't. And it's one of those things failing you when you say this is who I am and then all of a sudden it's gone, it shows you, oh no, in all areas of life, I'm actually quite vulnerable. I'm actually quite fragile. This illusion that I have of self-sufficiency, that I'm okay in and of myself, is just a lie. And those are just the outside forces. But you also have inside forces that can do this to you, stuff that's in your heart, stuff that we might be aware about or stuff that we're in complete denial of. Like some of us are deeply anxious that people are gonna find out that we're a pretender, that we are just an imposter, that we're not actually who we say that we are. Some people, some of us are really quite angry all of the time because we've been misused here and here and here and nobody is doing the things they ought to be doing and everybody is just a jerk and we're, gen- we're just resentful in general. Some of us are very proud and stubborn and we're wise in our own eyes and we don't take advice from others and we just think that, hey, I know what's going on. I've got it all together. Some of us have addictions that we like to pretend aren't really addictions and it's okay and no one, it's not hurting anybody else. And any one of those things 
can rear its ugly head, grow to such an extent that all of a sudden the things that we think that we have together and everything is fine get destroyed. They rise up and they ruin what you've got. And so it doesn't matter what kind of wonderful life you've built, something can always come along and ruin it. And at that moment, you know, uh uh-oh, I'm not actually self-sufficient. This is why most people are like Naaman. We don't start seeking God until something terrible starts coming around in our life and because we have this illusion of self-sufficiency and I can do everything by myself. When that problem comes up, all of a sudden I go, okay, I need help. I'm drawing near to you, God. What can I do, what can I do to make it go away? But the Lord just doesn't want to fix our problem. The Lord wants to heal us. So the purpose of our problem sometimes can be so that you'll draw near to God and say, okay, God, I, I need to be close to you. I need you to change stuff for me. This, I, I need you to be in control of my life. But there's a lot of people you know who are out of control of their life and they don't seek the Lord. So that's just one aspect of one purpose. The second one, which I kind of think you need both, is you have to come to see that what the world has to offer you, what the world says will fix all of your problems, can't actually fix your problems. So what does Naaman have that he brings with him to see the king of Israel? He brings a letter from his king showing, hey, I've got connections. People know me. People will vouch for me. This is the man who's at the top right now, the biggest nation, biggest powerful army who's currently a threat to you. I've got a letter from him saying, fix me. He's got connections, but he's also got money. He's bringing 10 talents of silver, all of these shekels of gold, all of these changes of clothing, which you could read different commentaries and be like, how much money is that? The point is, it's a lot. It's enough to try to bribe a king into convincing God to heal you, all right? It's that kind of money. A lot, a lot, a lot of money. And then lastly, and what's probably most important, is you have verse 13 where it says, but his servants came near and said to him, My father, it is a great word that the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? So that's the ESV. And I love the ESV, and I teach out of the ESV. The English Standard Version, what it is, is people who love Jesus and want other people to get to know Jesus as King, Savior, God, and friend, to be reconciled with God. They've taken the Hebrew text translated into English in the most clear way that they can so people can come to know Jesus as their king. Love them for that. They're they're Jesus lovers. Sometimes words don't get translated into another language 100% perfectly 100% of the time because words are just hard. And English in particular is just hard. So like in the Greek, you have four words that mean love, right? Four different words that mean love. In the English, we have love. I can say, I love Cheetos, I love puppies, I love my spouse, I love my animals, I love my kid, I love getting a full night's sleep. But those words are different. The kind of love that I have for my son and the kind of love that I have for a full night's sleep are very different. One of them I would die for and one of them I cry for. (laughs) But they're different words. They mean entirely different things and so the, the message, the definition can get lost. And so here, verse 13, I think it's more accurately translated like most other translations have. His servants approached him and said to him, oh, master, if the prophet had told you to do some difficult task, you would have been willing to do it. 
Because Naaman's whole thing is, I'm a man of prowess, of expertise, of skill. I, everyone knows me and all the things that I could do. I'm going to come to this king, and he's going to talk to his God. And like Lancelot, he's going to tell me where the den of the dragon is. I'm going to go slay the dragon. I'm going to commit some act of moral purity. I'm going to go and rescue the princess. I'm going to take the ring to Mordor and throw it into the volcano. I'm going to do these acts so that God will bless me. And these are all the things that he tried in Syria. He tried using connections. He went to the top. He went to the medical facilities. He tried using his money, paying people to try to fix him. Hey, what can we do? He tried going and, and proving himself to all of his gods. Hey, I'm worthy to be fixed, and nothing would work for him. So he looked to the world in Syria. Nothing worked. He gets word that there's a God in Israel, and so he's looking to do the exact same thing with this God. And what he has to learn and what he does learn is the stuff that the world says, hey, this can help you. If you just accumulate enough, enough of these things, you're going to be okay. They don't actually help him. They don't actually fix what's going on with him. And until you and I realize that the world can't ultimately solve our deepest problems, there's going to be no spiritual growth in us. And the first person who begins to show him this, to really illustrate it for him, is the king of Israel. So he comes to the king of Israel with the letter, with the money, with this willingness to do great things. And the king of Israel says in verse seven, and when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, am I God to kill and make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he's seeking a quarrel with me. So the first problem the king of Israel has is he's saying this other king's about to set off an international incident. He's trying to provoke me. Uh, he just sent his general to my house, said, hey, my guy's sick. You better heal him. Well, what a thinly veiled threat that is. Uh, and so he tears his clothes. Are you kidding me? But more than that, that's the first problem. More than that, the bigger problem, Naaman knows. The king of Israel knows that Naaman knows nothing about the God of Israel. Because what Naaman is doing is he's expecting the God of Israel to function like all other gods and all other religions. That if I do all of these things, then you have to approve me. Then you have to do what I want you to do. If I rub the genie correctly, if I prove myself, then you have to bless me. Or that the king is in charge and has the priests and the prophets on payroll. And if you come and you get the king to have favor with you, then he could talk to the priests and prophets on your behalf and get God to do what you need him to do. Or the God just operates as an extension of the culture, as an extension of the state, as a form of social control. He's going to come and do whatever he can to appease this God to see if he can get the king to get God to do what he wants. And the king tears his clothes, says, am I God? Because he knows this is the one place in the world where the prophets and the priests are not on a string where they can't just do whatever they want to do and force God to do things, where this God is real, where he's transcendent, where he's above the culture. He's not just a projection of the culture and a projection of the people's hearts, but the God who's here is the judge of the culture and the judge of the hearts. And he's a real God who does not bow and do whatever the king wants him to do. He's independent and there's nothing the king can do that could possibly force him to do anything. What a stressful situation that king is in. 
And the problems that Naaman has is causing him to seek the God of the Bible and what he's going to find, what he's finding out is the things that the world told him, if I get all these together, if I could just prove myself, then all of a sudden all my problems will go away. They can't actually heal him. They can't fix the deepest problems he has. So the purpose of our problems sometimes is to show us just that. The purpose of our problems is to show us that we really need God. Self-sufficiency is a lie. I need God to direct me and to lead me daily. And second, all these things that the world says, if you just have these, then you'll be happy, fulfilled, nothing bad will ever happen to you, don't actually work in the deepest needs that you have. So the question is, and for Naaman, for you and me, how do you get healed? How does Naaman then get healed? For you and me, we have to transition from being people who just want our problem to go away We have to transition from people who are suffering in need of help to people who are sinners recognizing their need of forgiveness. We need people who go, this is the deepest need of my heart. I need to be forgiven. I need to be healed in that deepest way. And you see it here in verse eight. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king saying, why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. He says, hey, send that man to me. Not so he can be fixed, not so his problems can go away, not so that he can be reconciled and go home and continue to live life the way that he, can't, he wants to. No, he's saying, let him come here so he can know there's a prophet here. There's a man who speaks for a living and true God here that he can have a personal, active, intimate connection with. That's the first thing that you see. The first thing you see when Naaman comes out of the river in verse 15, 15, in verse 15, he says, now I know that there is no God in all the world but in Israel. When, When Naaman comes out of the water, he doesn't say, man, there's a God in Israel that can do really cool stuff. He doesn't say, oh, there's a God in Israel who's bigger than my God because I asked all the priests in my nation to heal me and they couldn't. So this God must be bigger. No, he comes out and he says, there's no God but this one. There's a shift in what he believes in and how he views the world. He's realizing my problem isn't only fixed, but I can know this God. This God can be my God. I can be healed. And if you read the rest of 2 Kings 5, you'll see that that's what happens in his life. He takes it home with him. It's a whole worldview shift that he has. In Mark chapter 2, you've got this story where Jesus is going around, he's preaching and he's teaching and he's healing people. People who are blind are being able to see. People who are deaf are able to hear. People who are broken are being healed and able to resume life. And so Jesus comes to a town and all of these people want to see him and hear him and be healed, see what God is doing, hear what Jesus has to say. And these four friends have a buddy and their buddy's paralyzed. And he just fully cannot do life on his own. He's, he, and the buddies get together and they go, this Jesus guy, if he's legit, we can take him to him and he, Jesus can give him the opportunity to have a wife and to have a family and to have a career and have aspirations and goals and not just be stuck on a bed as a beggar, but he can have a full-on life. Let's get him to Jesus. So these four friends carry this man on a cot to the place where Jesus is at. And when they get there, there's all this commotion. There's all these people around. And they try to get through. Hey, we got this broken guy. We're trying to get him through. And they're like, yeah, well, we're trying to do stuff too. And no one's letting them through. So these four men do what men do, and they solve problems. 
Whether or not it's the right way, they're going to fix it. So what they do is they get this man on the roof, which is where all paraplegics should be, right? They get their buddy on the roof, and then they tear the roof open. They're like, we're getting to Jesus today. They tear the roof open, they lower him down, and Jesus sees these four friends who love their buddy. They want their buddy to have a a life where he can have a family and kids and a career. And Jesus says, my son, your sins are forgiven. I feel like the friends at that point go, love that, Jesus, love that. However, our friend here, he's got some issues that maybe might take precedent and you might want to also look at, right? Like we were kind of hoping for a little bit more. And the priests at the time, they look and they go, who can forgive sins but God? And Jesus looks at them and what he says is, what is harder for me to do? Is it harder for me to say that your sins are forgiven Or is it harder for me to command him to get up and walk? And to prove the point, Jesus says, get up, take your bed and walk. And he does just that. See, sometimes our problems, the reason that we have them is to get us to actively pursue and seek God and to to realize I need you every single day. The things of this world cannot satisfy me. They cannot help me the way that I need them to. I need to be healed. What is the point if Jesus fixes all of my problems, but I'm not reconciled with him and I, I, I die? I miss out. Jesus came to seek and save the lost, to reclaim and redeem us. And if the problem gets me to come to him, I guess it's a good problem. And so what we have to do is realize that problems come into my life and they shatter me. And the reason that they shatter me is because I don't have the kind of relationship with God that I ought to because I live for myself and I expect all of my friends and my family and my spouse to orbit around me and my reality and my needs. And then when those things don't work out, then I'm devastated and I'm broken about it. And I go, God, I need you to fix my problem. I'm so vulnerable. And until I can make the shift from a person who's just suffering in need of my problems going away to a sinner who needs healing, I'm going to constantly be in this swing of, okay, God, I need you. Oh, I'm fine. Okay, God, I need you. Oh, I'm fine. I want my problem solved instead of wanting forgiveness. And here's the thing. His problem's not trivial. Leprosy is a big, big, big deal. And some of you have come here today and you say, well, I already know Jesus and I am healed. Jesus has forgiven me and I am his kid and I still have these big problems that are really difficult for me to overcome and understand and I'm in a really dark place and I just need help and I don't get it. And that's super valid. Because you say, I know Jesus already. And what I say to you is this, no one knew Jesus better than Mary. That Mary carried Jesus, Mary fed Jesus. When Jesus was three and he skinned his knee, Mary was the one who picked him up and kissed his knee and made it all better. And she watched him grow up into this young, amazing, dependable man to where in John chapter three, when they run out of wine, she says, hey, if you guys just do whatever Jesus says, it's gonna be fine because he always comes through for me. I can trust him. And then she watches as People come and and listen to him teach. He's talking about the kingdom of God. And she says, oh my goodness, it's really happening. That thing the angel told me would happen with Jesus being the Messiah, the Christ, the one who's supposed to come. It's happening. How exciting. What a happy day. And then she will watch her little boy be beaten and be mocked and be accused and ridiculed and spat in his face and stripped of his clothes and crucified on a cross. And she will be at the foot of the cross watching him die. 
Psychologists say there's two traumatic events that alter your brain unlike anything else. For a parent, it's the loss of a child is number one by a long shot. And then second is the betrayal of a spouse. Those things alter your brain, they hurt you, they traumatize you in such a deep way. So Mary is there looking at her son that an angel told her, all of these plans, hey, this is from God. It was an immaculate conception. This is the Messiah, this is the king. And she's watching him, she's watching her baby die. Where, where is God? Where are his promises? Is he, does he not care about me? Am I being ignored? Sometimes when you're saved and you love Jesus and deep things are happening in your life and you're in such a dark place, your first thought is, is God ignoring me? And what happens three days later is Jesus, Jesus shows up as the resurrected Lord in his glory, and from then on, Mary will be able to look back on that day, the objectively worst day of her entire life. There will be no close second. She'll be able to look back on that day with all of the believers and say, that was good Friday, because on that day, God made a way for me to be reconciled to him so that I could be healed and Jesus could save and redeem and reclaim the entire world unto himself. Right now, if you're in a hard spot, you might be in the middle of your own really rough, dark day, and you say, God, I just don't get what's going on, and it might take more than three days. It might take more than a month. It might take a lifetime for you to finally be able to talk to Jesus and go, why was that happening? You'll be able to see how Jesus works all things together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. So if you're here and you love God and you're in a hard, dark place, just know I'm gonna keep my eyes on the resurrection. God is working something, even if right now I don't understand it, this might be my Good Friday. So that's what the believer keeps their eyes on. For the non-believer, we have to be people who don't just want our problems solved, but we need to be reconciled with God, that that's the deepest need of your soul. Jesus heals the paralytic man after forgiving his sins because he did it in the order of, of intensity. This is the thing that actually needs to be fixed. Your problems are trivial in comparison to how badly your soul needs to be reconciled with God. And so then here's what happens for Naaman. Here's how he comes to see that and to recognize that. In verse 13, the prophet tells him, hey, or the, the servant said, if the prophet told you to do some great thing, wouldn't you have done it? That's what he says to Naaman. If, if there was some great thing you could have done, wouldn't you have done that? Wouldn't you have gone through with it? Wouldn't you have, you would have slayed the dragon. You would have proven it through moral purity. You would have come through in some way. He's expecting religion to be just like every other religion. I'm gonna prove it. I'm gonna walk through this. I'm gonna show that I'm significant. I'm good enough. But here's what happens. Elisha doesn't even open the door for him. He shows up with his chariots and with crowds and with people and he comes, knocks on the door and the servant opens the door and he goes, are you Elisha? And he goes, no, I just work here. And he goes, can you get Elisha? And he goes, he's like butter and toast. He said he was busy. Um, if you jump in the water, you're gonna be fine. <laughs> Closes the door and he leaves, oh, infuriated because this, do you know who I am? You don't answer the door for me. It's humiliating. It's humiliating on purpose. More than that, Elisha literally does nothing. Look at what Naaman says. I thought, verse 11, that he would surely come out to me and stand up and call upon the name of the Lord, his God, and wave his hand all over the place and cure the leper. He doesn't do any of that. 
Naaman doesn't do any of the things Naaman's expecting him to do because Elisha doesn't want Naaman to think it was anything in my power or my ability that caused you to be healed. It was not my performance. And then verse three, this is the thing that really sets Naaman off. If you want your cure, go dip in the river seven times and he's enraged. He's absolutely enraged by this because who can jump into a river? Anybody can. Ashton just raised his hand. Anybody can. A general of the nation of Syria or little middle schooler Ashton can both jump into a river. A priest can jump into a river. A prostitute can jump into a river. A moral, pure person can jump into a river. And an immoral person who's strung out their life can. He says, does this God have no standards? Aren't the rivers back in Syria better than this muddy, dirty path? Aren't they better than that? Could I not just wash in them and be clean? He says, does this God have no standards? Doesn't he know who I am? He just wants me, I can just wash and be clean. He is enraged by it. Naaman is being shown that the great thing that you and I must do, the great thing that he has to do in order to be saved, in order to be cleansed, in order to be healed, is to realize that there's no great thing that he can do. The great thing you and I have to do in order to be reconciled with God, to be healed in your deepest ways, is recognize there's no great thing that you and I can do. The Bible says that God is the creator and the sustainer of the universe, that at this moment, Jesus is actually holding your very molecules and your cells together. What does a God like that deserve from his creation? Everything. To be constantly orbiting around him and his desires and his plans and his commands and his needs. And every single person falls short of that. Naaman's frustrated because this God has no standards. Doesn't he have standards? And you and I know this God has got huge standards. Because we have, the, okay, we get the law, hey, thou shalt not murder. And a lot of us go, oh, okay, great. There's some people in here, okay. But most of us are like, yeah, that's an easy one. Okay, well, Jesus says, hey, it's great that you've heard that you shouldn't murder, but if you've ever been angry with your brother in your heart, you've committed murder in the eyes of God in your heart. Well, it's infinitely higher. I was teaching the high schoolers a few weeks ago, and I said, the Bible says that you shouldn't lust or you shouldn't commit adultery. But Jesus says, if you've even looked at another human being with lust in your eyes, you've committed adultery. And every high schooler goes, dang it. Because <laughs> it just, you miss it. You, you constantly will always fall short of the standards that God has. The standards are too high. Therefore, the grace that God offers is for anybody and everybody. Romans 3.23 says, there's no difference between priest and prostitute for all have fallen short of the glory of God. And so he's infuriated, he's enraged because the thing that, the great thing he has to do is know that there's no thing that he can do to reconcile himself to God. The great deed that needs to be done has been done by the only person who could do it. And that's Jesus. That Jesus came and lived the perfectly moral life constantly orbited around God, following his direction, his plan, his wisdom, his discernment, his word. And then Jesus slew the ultimate dragon of sin and of death and did the ultimate deed that no one else could do or overcome. And now for you and me, we get to be people who come and wash and be cleansed and be healed. What can wash away my sins? 
Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And now all can freely come and wash. It takes no moral history. It takes no effort, only the willingness to admit that you need something that is free. It doesn't matter what the running score of your soul is, what's getting you down, what's ruining your life, the cure for it is right here. And Mark Scudstad told me this story this week that's so brilliant. There's three men on a cross, and two of them are mocking the one in the middle. And then something happens where one of them has a change of heart, and he says, will you remember me when you come into your kingdom? And the man in the middle says, surely today you'll be with me in paradise. And then those men die. And that one man who spoke to the man on the middle cross, he ends up coming to heaven. And he's standing before a gate, and there's an angel there. And he goes, I wasn't expecting anyone right now. Name? He goes, I don't have a Charles. He flips around. Oh, man, that's weird. I'm seeing, like, nothing but tardies on synagogue day. Did you ever go to church? You never went to church? Okay. Well, I mean, what verses do you know? Nothing? Okay, what doctrines can you recite? What, what in the world are you doing here? You haven't done any of the things. You haven't served anyone else. You were a terrorist. I see you stole from your mom. You thought those kind of jokes were funny. What in the world makes you think you get to come in? And the only answer that man could possibly have is, the man on the middle cross said I could come. That's what heals you and me. That's what, you, that's what gets you and I in. There's no great deed that you and I can do. The only thing you and I can do is trust that Jesus has done the great deed and he will heal you.